Last week, we talked about our fashion, if you were here, about the need to dress for our day, weddings, funerals, the time in between. So today, we're going to continue to riff on that theme a bit as we continue in the book of Colossians to hear from the Apostle Paul. So a few summers ago, my nephew, one of my brother's sons, got married, and their wedding was down near where they live in San Diego. Uh, And weddings are so much fun, right? Good chance to get together with family and an occasion maybe to dress up a little bit more than you ordinarily would. Uh, But due to our family schedule for this particular wedding, only three Olympia Joneses went down. I went, Kelsey went, Logan went. It also happened to coincide with one of Kelsey's soccer camps down in California. So I'm not going to give you too many of the travel details, but we did fly down early, earlier than the wedding, and we flew into Palm Springs, and then we drove over. That week involved some back and forth between Palm Springs and San Diego with the wedding on Friday. So finally, at the end of this long week, I had driven back and forth a few times. Finally, it was Friday. It was the wedding. And... Uh, I woke up that morning, uh, had some breakfast, and then it was time to get ready for the wedding. So I pulled out my garment bag, and I pulled out my suit, my dress shirt, my tie, dress shoes, and I had this moment. Couldn't find my pants. I was like, yeah, Kelsey recorded on her phone. Uh, I had this moment in the hotel room, I'm like, I don't have any pants, suit coat, dress shirt, tie, dress shoes, black socks, but no pants. I'm like, where in the world are my pants? And then it hit me. So in Palm Springs, when we first landed and we flew, and I didn't want my clothes to get wrinkled, so I unpacked the garment bag and I hung it up in the closet of my in-law's condo, and the pants slipped off the hanger and landed in the closet but I didn't discover it until about two and a half hours before the wedding. I panicked. Like, what do you do? Someone in my family suggested that I should just go to the wedding in shorts. But all I had was basketball shorts. It's like, that would have looked great, right? Dress coat, dress shirt, tie, dress shoes, and basketball shorts. So I decided... That wasn't going to fly, so I scrambled. Don't worry, it ended well. I found a mall nearby. I bought the cheapest pair of black slacks that I could find. We managed to get to the wedding on time. But like that moment, not only the moment of panic, but also just even that image stuck with me. Right, A coat, shirt, tie, no pants. Dress for your day. Why in that moment did I have such a strong desire for pants? Right? Because it was fitting. It was fitting for the occasion. It, it matched the expectation of the setting. Right? No one is going to see me roll in in a sport coat and basketball shorts and think, oh yeah, no big deal. Right? That's normal. Like, no one's going to think that. Because right? we dress for the day. So here's my question. What should the church look like? What should the church dress like? 
What should we as the church of Jesus Christ be wearing? Like what is fitting fashion? So last week, if you were here, we were at the beginning of chapter 3 of Colossians, and we talked a lot about the individual. That this applies individually. We talked about the need to get out of our grave clothes that stink and to get ready for the wedding. And that God invites us to individually dress a certain way that's in line with the Jesus story. And that's true. And that's good. But that's not the only question. It's not just what should I wear? How should I dress? It's not just about what's my character? What's my life? What's my story like? The question fits also in a collective sense with the church. What about the whole? What about the body? What should people expect from the church? What should people expect when they encounter the body of Christ? What's the saying that Gandhi said? He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Brennan Manning said, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And so like right now, in this moment, in our cultural moment, in this day and age, I tell you, my friends, the church of Jesus Christ is in a moment of decision. Or maybe I'll even be more specific. The American church is in a moment of decision. It's in a moment of reckoning. And I wonder sometimes if we forgot our pants. Or maybe we ditched them along the way. Because for a variety of factors, if you have looked at the statistics, many people in America are leaving the church, rejecting the church. And not necessarily because of Jesus, but because of us. So call it deconstruction, it's a popular buzzword right now. Call it quiet quitting, call it whatever you want. Here's the question though, if Jesus Christ is preeminent, Colossians makes that very clear, if he is preeminent, supreme, isn't he ought to be, shouldn't he ought to be supreme over the church, over his body, over his people? Like, Why is there such a disconnect? So today I want to talk more and explore more the, the corporate wardrobe of the body of Christ. This is where Paul goes next. So here's Colossians chapter 3. We'll start, I'm going to backtrack a verse in verse 11 to get a little bit of a running start here. Here's, here's where he goes. He talks about individual putting on, knowing the funeral, anticipating the wedding. He goes here next. Verse 11, he says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, Circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. 
As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So if this is true, if the Jesus story is true, we talked about that last week, the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and return of Jesus, if that's true, then we, the church, are invited to dress accordingly. So here's, here's our wardrobe. Here's the clothes for us to wear. The love of Christ, the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, the name of Christ. Because the love of Christ is our identity. The peace of Christ is given for our unity. The word of Christ governs our activity. The name of Christ is our ultimate authority. So these are the invitations for us to put these on. Let me walk through these four things. Love of Christ. The love of Christ. So Paul covers a bit of ground here. uh, Verse 12, 13, 14. But really... um, All of these first few verses are really in a bookend of love. So verse 12, he names their identities. He calls them chosen ones or the elect, holy ones. And he calls them beloved. So as as chosen ones, as the elect, as those who have been made holy by God, Paul reminds the Colossian community of their belovedness. He reminds them that they are loved, that they are deeply loved. Friends, may I remind you, we are loved. This is who we are. Why is it that belovedness is so hard for us to hold on to and to remember? That we are the ones that God loves. We are the ones that Jesus loves. John likes that nickname for himself. I'm the one that Jesus loves. He uses that all throughout the gospel of John. Oh, that we would too. That we are the ones that Jesus loves. We are beloved. It's who we are. More important than anything else in your life, may you grab on to that truth of your identity, that this marks you more than anything else, that you're loved Some of you never felt loved by a parent. Maybe you haven't felt loved by a spouse. Maybe you haven't felt loved by your friends. May you know that God loves you. Parfait, let us in that song, which I know it's an older song, and some are like, oh yeah, I've heard this song before. But would you know how much God loves you? You're beloved. It's our identity. And so he says, as those who are beloved, as those who are loved. Yes, we're chosen. Yes, we're holy ones. But we are beloved as those who are loved. Then we then are called to put on love. He says, above all these things, put on love. Verse 14. It's reminiscent of 1 Corinthians 13, where he says that the greatest is love. So as beloved ones, church, family of God, may we love. Garments of love. 
As loved ones, we love others. And he lists off these things in verse 12, that we put on compassionate hearts. Deep bowels of mercy. He names many of the fruit of the Spirit. It brings me back to our time in the fruit of the Spirit this summer. Kindness. Patience. Meekness. Gentleness. He reminds them that they are beloved, loved ones who get to put on the fruit of the Spirit. May we not forget our pants. This is, this is like the big stuff here. We are loved and we're called to love. And I know that can be like abstract. Oh, love, what is love? So that we may not just inflate our theological brains. Here are two ways that he says that you can be a person of love. You want to be concrete and actionable? Here are two things. Verse 13, what does it look like for beloved people to love? Two things, bear with one another and forgive people. You're like, can you give me something else to do? Because I don't really want to do that. Bear with one another and forgive. Bear means to endure with, to be patient with people, to struggle through with the load of the other, to bear with one another, and then to forgive, to release from your hands into God's hands. So both of those things, what they have in common is now we are in the realm of hurts and wounds and annoyances. Paul mentions complaints, problems, challenges, difficulties. This is when you bump into someone not on their best day and you get the worst part of them that comes out. Now we're talking about not just virtual living, but like real living we're called as people who are loved to bear one another's burdens. And then when they really wrong you and hurt you and tick you off, then we get to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. <laughs> Don't forget our pants. And we can have all these theological conversations. And I love theology. It matters. Bear with one another forgive. C.S. Lewis nails it on the head. He says, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have, to something, until they have something to forgive. And then to mention the subject at all is to be greeted with howls of anger. Oh yeah, forgiveness is awesome. Wait, you want me to forgive him? You want me to forgive her? Bearing and forgiving love. Like, what's the church known for in our day? Oh, that church community is known for bearing each other's burdens and forgiving like crazy. No, the American church right now looks more like bashing and forsaking than bearing and forgiving. Don't forget your pants. The love on Christ goes first. Which leads us to the next piece. The peace of Christ. The peace of Christ. Verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. So like Jesus, Paul is deeply concerned with the topic of unity. Unity is not uniformity. It does not mean that we all look the same, think the same, act the same. It's not just getting together with people who are like you. 
but it's unity. Unity. It's a unity that comes from letting the peace of Christ rule in our collective hearts and community. Look at verse 11. Paul names the different ways that they sliced and diced each other in groups. People dividing up by group is not a new idea. It's ancient. Humans have been doing it for a very long time. So here are a few of the ways. He says, you can do Greek and Jew. You can divide people up by ethnic lines. Greek and Jew. Circumcised, uncircumcised. You can divide people up by religious lines. Here's circumcision being the marker of the covenant community in the Jewish faith. The barbarians and the Scythians. That one may need a little bit more explanation. Uh, barbarians in the Greek, it's an onomatopoetic device. So it was the slur. It was spoken by the, the cultured Greeks, Greek-speaking people to those who didn't speak Greek. So it's kind of like our term hick or hillbilly. So non-Greek speakers sounded like barbar, barbar. And so to call them barbarians, this was a slur because their speech, they didn't know how to speak Greek, and so they sounded like a bunch of barbars. That's where the term barbarian comes from. And then even worse than the barbars were the Scythians. This is an ancient quote. The Scythians delight in murdering people and are little better than wild beasts. So the Scythians were even one cultural level worse on the uncultured scale. So... Further down the line were the Scythians. So you mock them even more. So like if hicks and hillbillies are bad, then swamp people in the deep south are worse. It's like people from the Hamptons looking down on the people of Walmart. It's the people from Bellevue looking down on the people from Elma. So we can divide people up. All sorts of ways, right? Ethnic lines, religious lines, cultural lines, slave and free, economic lines. I love how commentator Scott McKnight puts it. He says, but in Christ, the old is passe. Identity emerges not from one's ethnicity, heritage, or status in the Roman Empire. Your identity follower of Jesus, comes from Christ. But man, we love to dice people up. Ethnic lines, religious lines, cultural lines, socioeconomic lines, the way we talk. It's been said the church was the first multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-socioeconomic strata, male-female community in human history. In the first century Greco-Roman world, the best thinking available at the time taught that men and women, slave and free, Jews and Gentiles, couldn't belong to the same group or gatherings. Glenn Packiam says, though, the church should be the place that if a stranger were to come in and look around, they would not be able to figure out what all these people have in common except Jesus. As Eugene Peterson said, isn't the church, it isn't the church until there is room for someone you would not have chosen. 
<laughs> we want a church that looks like us and talks like us and are all the people that we would choose. No, it actually isn't church until someone's allowed in that you wouldn't have picked. And the common factor is Jesus. Didn't that mark the early 12? They didn't have anything in common. But Jesus. So Paul's calling for a church, a body. It's clothed in love, bearing burdens, forgiving one another when you're wrong. And then that the peace of Jesus would be the controlling principle of their community. Let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. The word rule there is a fun word. Brabuo. Control the activity of another. It means, actually, it's literally ancient umpire language. Actually, I was going to call him up. I think he's done in kids today. I was going to call it Tony, Anthony, Wilson. If you, see, you, know, you know Anthony, Tony? He started doing umpire training. Eric showed me some pictures of him learning how to call balls and strikes. But the umpire dictates the strike zone. The umpire calls the game. The umpire says, oh, that's a ball. That's outside the strike zone. Oh, that's a strike. The umpire is the one who says, you're out. Ball, strike, out. The umpire controls the game. And Paul picks up that kind of language and says, here's what's going to call the game in your community. Not your silly rules about culture, not your silly rules about status, not your silly rules about religion, not your silly rules around your family of origin or the way that you speak. Here's what's going to call the balls and strikes of the community, the peace of Jesus. The shalom of God demands the question, what promotes us being one body united in Jesus? Because as verse 11 says, Christ is all. We like all these little ways that we can divide up. Christ is all and in all. So our labels, our divisions, our barriers, our, our judgments, our preconceived ideas of superiority because we come from the right people and we do things the right way. The umpire, the peace of Jesus, says that's out and allows us to live in unity with someone in the room that you may not have called a friend. You may not have chosen as a friend. So it's not rich and poor. It's not Republican, Democrat. It's not progressive, conservative. Educated, uneducated. It's not homeschool, public school. Vax, anti-vax. Charismatic cessationist. Black and white. The peace of Jesus calls us together as a body. Get your pants. Peace of Jesus rules here at Reality Church. May it be so. We fracture too fast and over things that ought not divide us. It's why so many people come and look at the church and are like, that's no different than us. The word of Christ 
as our activity. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the ministry of Jesus continues in his body, this time with the word of Christ dwelling in us. That word dwell means to make yourself at home. May it live in us. That kick off your shoes, take off your socks, and make yourself at home. May the word of Christ be comfortable in our hearts. May the word of Christ be comfortable in our community. May the word of Christ dwell in us so that when we do spend time together, here are some of the things that begin to happen. All this word of God activity, not just loving, yet we get to bear with one another and forgive. We have unity where we tear down these walls and divisions, but also the word of Christ is free to work among us. So we teach one another. We admonish one another. You know what it means to admonish someone? It means to call them out. Again, some people do that as jerks. (laughs) And they feel like they have the spiritual gift of admonishment. But man, when it's done well and right, like there's a time you're like, you know what? That's actually not helpful. That's wrong. That's sin. And that's where the word of Christ gets to happen among us, admonishing. We apply wisdom to the situations that we face. Like, I don't know what to do. May the word of Christ be at work among us to fill in the gaps. And we ask the Father for wisdom. And the the wisdom of God comes through those who have walked with him and give wisdom to bear. And we sing together. Like, why do we spend so much time singing? There's something that happens in this. When we sing psalms and we sing hymns and we sing spiritual songs where we take what is true and proclaim it to God, to one another, to the spiritual realms, watching and listening. The people of God declare that Jesus is worthy, that he is Lord, that he is faithful, that he is good. And there's some days I just need to hear it from someone else. I need the word of Christ from you. Part of my job here is to bring the word of Christ to you. But this is a one another thing. We are called as a church to have a very vigorous ministry of the word together. The word of Christ dwelling richly among us. Not just because we have to. Not just because it's a dutiful thing. That Oh, this is what you have to do as a Christian. No, in teaching and correcting and singing and rehearsing, we let the word of Jesus be at home among us. And it's how we grow. It's how we learn. It's how we are shaped. It's how we develop. We're not just passive in this. We're not just consumers in this. But it's a community activity, not just for a few, but for the many that we sing and we teach and we correct and we share that the substance of our conversations isn't just about the weather, though you can talk about the weather. And it's not just about the Seahawks or the Mariners. There's actually something substantial to our engagement where the word of God is coming in and out of our mouths as we sing and we talk and we engage together together. 
very much in line with Colossians 1.28. When Paul began this letter, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Friends, that's the goal. The you and, and, and all of us together, that we would be presented one day, the wedding day is coming, that one day presented before Jesus, mature in him. And here's the work then until then, is the way in which we're going to be presented mature in Jesus is a vigorous ministry of the word one another with one another. Let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. The name of Christ is our authority. At the end here, at the end of the passage, Paul pulls out the junk drawer as if he hasn't covered enough ground, as if there's anything he left out. He's like, all right, I'm going to cover all my bases. Verse 17. Whatever you do. <laughs> like, I've mentioned a lot here of love and peace, the word of Christ. Whatever you do in your words, in your deeds, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. Everything. Counts it for everything. Wherever you go, whatever you do, whatever you touch, whatever you engage, whatever you say, here's what you're called to do. You are commissioned to operate in the authority, in the name of Jesus. It literally reads, everything, whatever you do, word or deed, everything, in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's emphatic. Nothing. Christians, Jesus followers, body of Christ, nothing escapes the lordship of Jesus. He is the preeminent one over all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. He is crucified, risen, exalted, vindicated, coming again. So therefore, all of our lives is meant to be touched by his rule and reign. F.F. Bruce, he goes after this by saying, here's, here's our mentality. What's the Christian thing to do here? Like, can I, can I do this without compromising my Christian confession? Can I do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, whose reputation is at stake in the conduct of his known followers? As we go through our day, as I talk, and I work, and I play, and I parent, and I serve, and I, whatever I do, the reputation of Jesus is at stake through his people. Man, there have been times we've done a really lousy job. At times, like, completely counter the kingdom. This is how we live in the authority of Christ, in everything for the sake of Christ and his reputation in everything. What does this mean for the name of Jesus for the person that I'm speaking to right now? What does this mean for the name of Jesus? If I do this, say this, engage this, or don't do this, or don't say this, or don't engage this, what does this mean for his name? Don't forget your pants. <laughs> Love of Christ, peace of Christ, word of Christ. Christ. 
name of Christ. There's a whole lot of Jesus going on here. We're called to put on every day. As I mentioned last week, here's the stuff, here's the thing about getting dressed. You've got to do it every day. Day after day after day, may we put on these things. Referring back to the Gandhi quote, this reconnects the Christian with the Christ. Reality Church, what are we wearing? Are we known, are we known in this community as a radical church of love that bears with one another and forgives when wrong? Are we known as a church that is unified by the peace of Jesus across all sorts of lines that tears down divisions? Or are we known as a church that builds walls and fractures? Are we known as a church that's dedicated to a very robust ministry of the word among one another and where our words, what we speak, teach, sing, and celebrate in the building and out, match up with the character of Jesus. I'm not a doomsdayer, but again, I think the American church right now is at a moment of reckoning where without change of course and repentance, the American church is in danger of becoming irrelevant to people because of our own hypocrisy. So God calls us back to this vision. This week I couldn't get this song out of my head. You want to play it for me? You ever heard this song before? It's a good day when you listen to a little Stevie Wonder. before the solo there. So I, I've heard that song many times before. I always thought he's just talking about some girl who's beautiful. You know the story? Maybe some of you do. Right? Isn't she lovely? Isn't she wonderful? Isn't she precious? Less than one minute old. I never thought through love we'd be making one as lovely as she. Isn't she lovely? Made from love. So he writes this song after the birth of his daughter. Her name's Aisha. And later in the song, he gives credit to Yolanda for bringing her into the world. But from one minute old, good old Stevie is taken 
I've got two daughters. I know what that song means. I remember holding my daughters in my hand, a few minutes old. Oh, man, they grabbed my heart. And this is a father that is just doting over his girl. Isn't she lovely? Isn't she wonderful? Isn't she precious? It's like I, I get this fatherly feeling as I listen to that song and I think about my daughters. I love them so much. And I know that it makes me cry to think about. And I know that even that Stevie heart for his little girl and my smittenness over my daughters pales in comparison with the father. I hear this even spoken about his church. Isn't she lovely? Isn't she wonderful? Isn't she precious? Not just after a minute, but like affections for us that go back eternity past, before the foundations of the world. This is the heart of the Father over his church. This is the heart of Jesus over his bride, who says, isn't she lovely? Isn't she precious? Isn't she wonderful? And in the midst of a storyline of history where many have been killed in the name of the church, like literally people have preached in pulpits on Sunday and worn KKK masks on Monday. People have, in the church have sought political power, divided and 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 divided. And yet the Father still says, isn't she lovely? Isn't she wonderful? Isn't she precious? And the father runs out of superlatives to speak that over his bride. Because of Jesus who makes us such. As we've forgotten our pants time after time after time, Jesus says, let me clothe you and love you, and wash you, forgive you, repurpose you, rebuild you, clothe you. One day you will be without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish, lovely, precious, wonderful. It's church. It's the invitation to dress for our day. Some questions as we end. How can I live in the loveliness of the body? It's like, where, where can I bear one another's burdens instead of blowing people off? Maybe, maybe who do I need to forgive instead of living in bitterness? Who do I avoid or cut off instead of seeking unity? Unity. How might I actively minister the word of Christ to someone else in the body? Like, where am I damaging the reputation of Christ? Don't forget your pants. And don't forget the Father's love and his blessing and his words of affection over this beautiful bride. made perfect and lovely through 
the Son, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, I thank you for your word, for, for this part of the ministry of the word, but Lord, I know that this isn't alone, this alone is not enough, it's not sufficient, because there needs to be more ministry of the word that's grabbed by the Spirit and worked deep into the soil of our hearts that actually changes the way that we love one another and speak to one another and do conflict with one another to let your peace be the controlling principle of our church that we'd seek after unity together, that we would be so marked by our belovedness that it would ooze out over others. Every part of the body needed, every part valuable, every person a contributing member to what you're up to. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your great love your great work. May we hear even tonight how beautiful you you think we are, how loved we are, how much your grace and mercy washes us (laughs) and invites us forward. Lord, I have a sense that that, that we as a church are on the brink of a new chapter and a new era in our life. And yes, the building's part of it, and new leadership's part of it, but there's something new and fresh you're stirring here. Lord, I pray that we would live worthy of this calling. That we'd love other people well in your name. That your name and fame and reputation in Thurston County would be made much of through us and through the rest of the other churches, the church of Thurston County. Would you do a work in our day that is distinct and from your hand? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.